You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, we pray that you would grant to us wisdom and discernment of your word. We pray that you would make your word live to us. It is the living word of God. We pray that we would be able to see its power and to experience that power. We pray that you would bring your words, your intentions in this text, and bear upon our hearts. That we would love you and that we would give our lives in service to you. We glorify here this morning as we celebrate and meditate upon the resurrection of the blessed Savior, our Lord, and our King, the Lord Jesus. Name we pray. Amen. Today is April Fools or April First, and uh, we look like spring was here, and then April Fools. We wake up to come to church, and spring's not quite here. And so, on April First, uh, is this the day we are supposed to relatives, our friends, the people that we love, and we play little tricks on them. Sometimes it can be a little gotcha moment. Sometimes a more elaborate practical joke, an elaborate scheme intended to deceive them. And the whole point of a trick or, or fooling somebody is to get somebody to think or to behave or to react as if something is true when in fact it is not true. That's the whole essence of a trick. You deceive them into thinking that something is real or true when it's not, and they respond appropriately. And if you do that, then you are said to have fooled somebody, or you're said to have been fooled. And in that way, our definition of the way that we talk about fools and the way that the Bible talks about fools is very similar, almost the same. Because the biblical definition of a fool is somebody who lives as if something is real when in fact it is not. The fool says in his heart that there is no God. That's foolish because there is a God. The fool sins and lives brazenly and lives in his wickedness impenitent because he believes or acts or lives as if there is going to be no accountability and no judgment, no justice, as if the laws of God's righteousness and justice do not pertain to him. That is foolish. That makes him a fool. Because those laws do pertain to him. A fool lives as if there is no resurrection, but in fact there is a resurrection. So a fool is one who lives according to his view of reality, when that reality is not actually real. When it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, today, around the world, faithful pastors are going to be proclaiming to their congregations, the people who stand before them, sit before them, that Jesus Christ is risen. And so since we're doing that on April Fool's Day, I thought it would be appropriate to drive home one particular point, and that is that the teaching and the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ will inevitably make a fool out of somebody. Here's what I mean by that. Either the resurrection of Christ happened, or it did not. It is either history or it is a hoax. It is either fact or it is fantasy. It's either real history, a real event, or it is something that is made to be is made up. There's no middle ground between those two things. The resurrection of Christ is either truth or it is fiction. It's one of those two things. If the resurrection of Christ did not happen, then those of us who live as if it did, we're the fools. Here's why we're the fools. Because we are trusting in Him to give us the righteousness which we need before God. We're trusting in a dead man whose corpse rotted in a tomb, in a grave. We're trusting in him to make us righteous and holy and to forgive our sins and to give us access to God. We're trusting in somebody whose, whose body rotted in a grave to resurrect us at the end of time. That's our hope. We want to be resurrected and to 
live and dwell before the face of God in glorified bodies. That's our hope. If Christ is not risen and we're living as if he is, then we're trusting foolishly in somebody who cannot do that for himself to do that for us. If Christ is not risen and we are living as if he is, then we are living lives of sacrifice and service, of denying ourselves earthly pleasures and worldly entertainments and fulfilling the lust of our flesh. And we're giving up all of this for what? When there is no heaven and there is no hell and there's no ultimate reality and God doesn't exist and there's no reward afterwards. If Christ is not risen and we're living as if he is, then we're the fools. But if, on the other hand, Christ is risen and you are living as if he is not, then you're the fool. Not me, but you. Because you're living according to the, the, the philosophy of eating and drinking and being married for tomorrow you die. There's no resurrection, there's no accountability, and there's no justice, and there's no heaven, and there's no hell, and you're not going to stand before God. And if Christ is risen and you are living as if he is not, then you are the fool. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is bound to make a fool out of something. Either it happened, and those who live as if it did, did not are fools, or it did not happen, and those of us who are living as if it did, we are the fools. When in fact, the resurrection of Christ did happen, and it is a historical event. Those are the only two options, and you can see that there's a lot hinging upon this because the entire the, the entire doctrine of the New Testament, the entire New Testament itself revolves around the doctrine of the resurrection. If the resurrection did not happen, then the entire New Testament is false. Because all of the New Testament, the, the missionary journeys, the gospels themselves, all of the epistles, they explain the implications of the resurrection. They explain why the resurrection happened, how the resurrection happened, and what the resurrection means for us. That is the message of the New Testament. And you can see how central the preaching of the resurrection was to the apostles and their preaching when you read through the book of Acts. Now here is an interesting little homework assignment for you if you want it. Read through the book of Acts in the week that is to come and take note of all of the times the resurrection of Christ is mentioned. It starts in chapter 1 verse 3 and it's all the way through the book of Acts, all the way to the very end. And when you get to the very end, look for words and phrases like this, the hope of Israel, the hope of the nation. Our hope, because there Paul uses the hope, that is, and he uses the word hope synonymous with resurrection. The resurrection is our blessed hope. We're looking forward to our own resurrection, and so the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of all the saints is the blessed hope that the Old Testament saints look forward to, and that we as New Testament saints also look forward to. So read through the book of Acts and take note of all the places where the resurrection pops up, and you will see that the main theme of the book of Acts is the resurrection of Christ. Without that, there is no book of Acts. Without the resurrection, there's no point that the apostles going out and telling other people about Jesus and then suffering and dying and being wandered and giving up everything. There's no point to all of that. It was central to the preaching of the apostles, the resurrection of Christ was. And so I want you to notice this as we turn to Acts chapter 13. Your Bibles are open there. This is the passage that we looked at and we read this morning. I'll give you quick, a bit, bit of a quick outline or overview of this whole passage. We're not going to be covering all these verses, obviously. We're going to be looking at a couple of them uh, very specifically. In verses 13 to 16, kind of sets the stage. This is the Apostle Paul's first missionary journey uh, after leaving the island of Cyprus and, and landing on the shores of Asia Minor and on the south shore of what is now Turkey. He went up into the regions of what was called Galatia at the time. There, He preached in the cities of Lystra and Derbe and the city of Antioch and Iconium. That's where Paul was stoned left the dead later on. He had Barnabas with him on his first missionary journey. This is the same region that he would later write, uh, later write the letter of the Galatia, to the Galatians to the number of churches that are in this area. So the, these people here in the city of Antioch where Paul's preaching this message, they would have been the recipients, one of the churches that received the book of Galatians. So the Apostle Paul begins in verse 16 when he is invited to stand up 
and to address the people who were there. And he went into the town, he went to the synagogue, which was his custom, and he presented Christ to the Jews who had gathered in the synagogue. And so they invite him as a traveling preacher, a traveling rabbi, to address the people if he would like. That's not something we would ever do here, by the way. If you're a traveling preacher and you step in here, at no point ever will one of the elders say, hey, you got something to say? Come on up and say it. We would never do that. But they did that in the synagogues. And Paul was a man who was a rabbi, he was a Jewish rabbi, and so they gave him the floor for a period of time. So he gets right to the, the point in verse 17. He says, Men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted hand, he led them out from it. Now he's going to trace the history of the nation of Israel. And he's speaking to his fellow Jews. So this was a history that they had in common with him. And after choosing Abraham and, and making himself known to Abraham, the fathers, he sent them down into Egypt where he preserved the nation and he delivered them with an uplifted arm. Verse 18, for a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. So there's just a couple of cents. He covers about four and a half centuries of Israel's history. Verse 20, after these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin. For forty years, after he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom also he testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. In verse 24, he talks about how John the Baptist had proclaimed before Christ the coming baptism of repentance for all the people of Israel. Verse 25, and while John was completing his course, he kept saying, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not he, that is, I'm not the Christ, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So he goes through the entire history of the nation of Israel, from the calling of Abraham all the way up until God sending Jesus. And the point of this was to show that both God's sending of the Lord Jesus Christ and eventually the nation's rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ were both fulfilled as prophecy. God had promised to Abraham, through you I will bless all the descendants of the earth. All the nations of the world will be blessed through you. And then God reiterated that through Moses in the giving of the Old Covenant and promised that he would bring the children of Israel out of Egypt through Moses and bring them into the land, which God did. He fulfilled that. And all that was to set up the, the, the nation as a king. And so he gave them judges for a period of time. And then Saul, and eventually David. And then God reiterated that promise to David. I will see one of your descendants upon your throne. And he will rule and he will reign forever. One will rise up after you, to whom I will give your kingdom, and it will be an eternal king, uh, an eternal kingdom, and he will be an eternal king. So there's promises to Abraham, to then to Moses, and then to David specifically, those three men, all of whom you could trace the entire development of the Old Testament, Old Covenant through those three men. He is, he is setting them up to understand that when Christ appears on the scene, it is a fulfillment of centuries of promise and preparation. They've been waiting for this and anticipating this. And so he says in verse 26, Brethren, son of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation is not sent. He's arrived. This is the message of salvation. He is the fulfillment of the promise. So then when he came, what did the Jews do to him? Did they receive him? Did they welcome him? Did they embrace him with open, open arms and say, Oh, the king has come to establish the kingdom. This is the one that was promised to Abraham, see? This is the one that was promised to Moses. This is the one that was promised to David. This is the descendant of David. He's the king of Israel. Did they recognize any of that? No, verse 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. They didn't recognize either him nor the things that the prophets spoke concerning him, and in unwittingly 
They fulfilled the promises of the prophets by condemning him to death. Verse 28. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in the tomb. In other words, every prophecy that had been given concerning the rejection of the nation, of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the, by the nation, all of those prophecies, everything written concerning him, concerning his first coming, all of that was fulfilled. And you can, you can imagine that the Apostle Paul has all kinds of investment passages in life. We look at something. Psalm 22, that graphic description by David of the crucifixion, centuries before crucifixion was ever invented, where, where, hanging, where, where, where he describes his agony in terms of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He speaks of thirsting and his tongue clinging to the roof of his mouth and all his joints, and the bones being out of joint and being harsh and suffering and, and people gambling for his clothing and casting lots for his garments. Remember that all fulfilled in Psalm 22? It's like Paul might have been thinking of Isaiah 53. For our sake he was wounded, for our transgressions he was bruised, he bore our sins like a lamb led to the slaughter. He was innocent, and yet God was pleased to crush him in our stead, Isaiah 53 says. And so he was with the rich man in his death, he was buried in a rich man's tomb, all of that was fulfilled, Isaiah 53. And his being betrayed by a friend was fulfilled, being sold for 30 pieces of silver was fulfilled, his rejection by the nation was fulfilled. All of those things were written concerning him, all of them fulfilled. And so what is Paul's point? God, in sending the Messiah, fulfilled Old Testament promises. God, in the nation, in rejecting that Messiah, also fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. prophecies. And though they, they read these passages every Sabbath day, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 and all of the Old Testament passages, they read them every Sabbath day. They could not recognize when he was standing in their presence that this is the one who was the fulfillment of all that. And so handing him over to Pilate, they, they delivered him over to be crucified, and he suffered, and he died. Now verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. Now that's a truth claim. That's a declaration of what is true in history that God raised him from the dead. And the Apostle Paul lands here on the resurrection. This becomes the theme of the rest of the message that he gives in this synagogue. That God has raised the Messiah from the dead. You notice it's mentioned there in verse 30. It's mentioned in verse 33. That God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm. Verse 34. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead. Look down in verse 37. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Four times the Apostle Paul mentions it. Because he is emphasizing something. That though God had sent the Messiah and the nation had rejected him, God did something else. He raised the Messiah from the dead. And that's the central theme of his message. So now you might ask, is it possible then that the Apostle Paul's emphasis on the resurrection was something unique to the Apostle Paul? And it was not. As I mentioned earlier, this is in fact is one of the central themes, if not the central theme, of the book of Acts. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you a brief survey. I'm going to read through the first the references found in the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts. And this primarily, the first 12 chapters, primarily has to do with the ministry of the Apostle Peter. And also John is in there as well, but primarily the focus is on the Apostle Peter. The book of Acts begins in one verse. The first reference to resurrection is in chapter 1, verse 3. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Then in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter nails home, this, nails, nails home this point, saying, This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. Then in chapter 4, Luke says, And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all. Then in chapter 5, when Peter and John are imprisoned for 
speaking and preaching about the resurrection of Christ, we read this. Peter says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you would put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God has exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Later on, when the apostle Peter is preaching the gospel to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, here's what Peter says. We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen before him. By God, that is to us, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Peter there claims to be one of the eyewitnesses. So what's the theme of the first 12 chapters? The resurrection of Christ. You know what got the apostles in trouble for, pre for the preaching in the book of Acts? It wasn't the fact that they were feeding poor people or sharing their food, doing social programs. That's not what got them in trouble. Wasn't, it wasn't the fact that they liked to gather together and sing and not outside the temple or inside the temple. And it wasn't even the fact that they had been followers of Jesus. You know what got them in trouble? They would not shut up about the resurrection of Christ. They could have preached everything that they preached and remained silent about the resurrection and its implications. And all of them would live and die natural lives at the age. All of them would. It was the resurrection. Paul says later on in the book of Acts, this is why I am on trial for the hope of our fathers. If he had shut up about the resurrection, he would have left him alone. Every Jew would have left him alone. That was what stuck in their throat. That they had crucified the Messiah, and God had raised him from the dead, and the apostles had every opportunity took the, took the chance to point that out. And they would not shut up about it. And since they would not shut up about that, they said we have to kill them, because this is all that they talked about. Resurrection is the central theme of apostolic preaching. So then when we get to Acts chapter 13, having read all of that in the beginning of the book of Acts, we get to 13, we see Paul emphasize the resurrection. We say, that's just Paul being Paul. That's an apostle being an apostle. So what all the early Christians did, they talked about the resurrection. So this is nothing new. He's in apostolic tradition. He's in the apostolic vein, doing what the apostle did, preaching about the resurrection of Christ. That was the central element of New Testament Christian preaching and teaching. That Christ is risen. And you put him to death. God raised him from the dead. His death was a fulfillment of prophecy, and God raised him up. So now we're going to look at, after that way too long of an introduction, we're going to look at the second part here of Paul's message, and we're going to see four points. Four points about the resurrection. First, that the resurrection of Christ is a prophetic event. We're going to see how Paul describes this as a prophetic event. It's a historical event, a verifiable event, and a watershed event. It's a prophetic event, a historical event, a verifiable event, and it is a watershed event. First, it is a prophetic event, and for this I want you to see how the Apostle Paul quotes the scriptures beginning in verse 33. That God has fulfilled this promise to our children, and that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second song, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now Paul's going to quote three separate Old Testament passages, Psalm 2, Isaiah 55, and Psalm 16. The first one is Psalm 2, quoted in verse 33. And that might sound a little bit familiar. You are my son today, I have begotten you. Where have I heard that recently before? It was in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. But there in Hebrews chapter 1, the point of it is the son. Uh, you are my son. And there, remember, the author is showing that to none of the angels has God ever said, you are my son. So he's showing the supremacy of Jesus Christ over the angels by showing them the title that Christ has. But here, Paul is quoting the book, uh, the Psalm chapter, Psalm chapter 2, 
by emphasizing that word begotten. Today I have begotten you. And there the word means to be raised up. And here Paul is taking the use of that word being raised up. And he is applying that to the resurrection. And he is saying in that in the God has raised up Jesus from the dead. That is the begotten that is being spoken of. He is brought forth or raised up or brought out of the grave. That's the idea. And there's other things in Psalm 2 that also require the resurrection in order to be fulfilled. It's not just that God has begotten him, but that Christ would sit upon the throne. Remember, God's answer to the raging of the nations is to stay and say, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion. And therefore bow down, O kings of the earth, to him, and do him homage, and kiss the son, lest he be angry with you, and you perish in the way. Well, how can one reign over the house of David and over the kingdom of David, an eternal kingdom, unless he be raised from the dead? So Psalm 2, and the promises there, require the resurrection. The second passage that Paul quoted is Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55 is significant because of the expanded or enlarged context of that. Remember, we go back to Isaiah 53, and what do we read in Isaiah 53? That the one whom God sent as his servant, the perfect servant, he died for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. It was our sin that brought chastisement upon him. It is the just dying for the unjust. And, and there in Isaiah 53, Christ is pictured as a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and he dies, and God is pleased to crush him in our stead, uh, pouring out his wrath upon his son or that servant in the stead of his people. It is a substitutionary atonement in Isaiah 53. So if you're reading through the book of Isaiah as an Old Testament Jew, and you come across Isaiah 53, you say, this is the perfect servant of God, the Messiah. But the language that is used here describes a death, a sacrificial death. He made him to be our atonement, our sin offering. How is it possible that the Messiah would die? And you would be left scratching your head, wondering how that's going to work out. Then you would get to Psalm, I'm sorry, Isaiah 54. And Isaiah 54, you would read of the abundant blessings that God was going to get bring to the nations. And then you would turn to Isaiah 55, and you would read more about these abundant blessings that God was going to give to the nation. And then you would wonder, how is it that the one who is the vehicle through which all of those blessings would come, if he dies and he suffers as a sacrifice, how is it that those blessings can still be given to us to fulfill what God said to David? How can that happen? So Isaiah 53 is the death. Isaiah 54 is blessing. How does blessing come? Because this one, how did this one who has died? Didn't make any sense. How can, how can a king who is dead bless our people? Well, Paul says, he quotes from Isaiah 53 in verse 34. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay. Well, that's sorry, no, that's the that's the third one. He raised up Jesus, verse thirty-three. Where am I? Oh yeah, no, that's verse thirty-four. That was right. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay. He has spoken in this way: I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. That's the promise from Isaiah fifty-five. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. What I promised to David in terms of the kingdom and blessing. And national inheritance, I'm surely going to give that to you. How can you give that to us? It's the one you described in verse chapter 53 is dead. You see, in order for God to bless the nation and fulfill the promises of David, he had to raise the Lord Jesus from the dead. So in order that those blessings might be given, you had to have a resurrected Messiah. How could a dead king bless the people? Well, if the dead king was raised from the dead, then he could sit over the eternal kingdom and bless the nation and fulfill the promises of David. I don't want to get into an eschatological debate. But if Paul is not a premillennialist, his argument in this passage makes no sense whatsoever. I'll let those of you who understand what that's about sort that out. I am a premillennialist. Apostle Paul assumes that there's going to be a kingdom. If there's going to be a kingdom, there's going to be a kingdom. 
and a physical king, a physical throne, and so he'd be raised physically from the dead. The third passage that the Apostle Paul quotes is from Psalm 16. This one's familiar too because Peter makes the exact same argument that Paul does here back in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, verse 35. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, that's Psalm 16, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. And, and Peter quotes the same psalm in the, in the, certainly in the sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And he makes the same argument that Paul does in verse 36. David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and he underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. So Psalm 16 is written by David and he says that he is trusting in God's promise that God would not allow the whole, his holy one to undergo decay. And yet David died. So obviously David is not that holy one. So the fulfillment of that promise had to rest on somebody else who would not suffer decay. And now, now looking back upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all of a sudden these Old Testament passages, they make sense. This was all a fulfillment of promise. Everything God promised in the Old Testament concerning his coming was fulfilled. Everything God promised concerning his death was fulfilled. And everything God promised concerning his resurrection is fulfilled. And everything God has promised concerning the future kingdom and his return and the judgment that is to come, it will also be fulfilled. God has fulfilled everything concerning this Messiah just as it is written. And he will fulfill every last word of what is to come exactly as it is written. That is God's promise. Now, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a doctrine that is invented late by the apostles, something they fabricated and then tried to find some Old Testament passages uh, to drum up and support them. The resurrection of Jesus Christ shines a light on the Old Testament text. So you're reading through the Old Testament text as a Jew, there's a lot of stuff that is mysterious. It's kind of hidden in the, the, the crevices and the corners. You understand how all of this comes to pass. But then once you watch the Messiah die on a cross and rise again from the dead and walk among us, all of a sudden, all the pieces of the Old Testament fall into place. It's like Dorothy walking out of her house in the land of Oz, and her black and white world becomes technicolor. That's how the Old Testament comes to life when you see it in the light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it is a prophetic event. Second, it's a historical event. It actually happened. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical event. And Apostle Paul claims this in verse 30 when he says, But God raised him from the dead. He reasserts in verse 33 and verse 34 and verse 37. God raised him from the dead. That either happened or it did not. Christ was resurrected. That it happened or it did not. It is a historical event. The claim of Christianity is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is just as much a fixture of history as is the fall of the Roman Empire, the invention of the printing press, or the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Those things either happened or they did not. Our claim is not that our belief in the resurrection makes us feel better, and therefore we believe in something that might have happened and might not have happened. The doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not something ancillary or secondary to New Testament teaching. It's not something we add on to the teaching of the Bible like you might add pinstriping onto the side of a hot rod. It is the hot rod. The resurrection of Christ is the hot rod. It's not something we add to it to dress it up. It's fashionable in our day to hear people who are theological liberals who deny the doctrine of inerrancy to say that it is not really important whether or not Christ actually rose from the dead. What is important is how convincingly we believe it. It's not the fact of whether or not it happens, it's the fact that we believe it happens. And it is our belief. Not that it makes it so, because according to theological liberals, even if they were to dig up and find the, the bones of Jesus, it wouldn't destroy our Christian faith, because we just believe that it happened, that belief warms our heart. That belief motivates us to serve. That belief motivates us to sacrifice. That belief makes us better people. Jesus Christ has not risen from the dead. But you believe that he is. Your belief 
does not make you commendable. It's you commendable. You shouldn't be commended. You should be commended. To an insane son. If you believe something that you know did not happen, you're a fool. The stronger you believe it, it doesn't make you more commendable. It makes you more foolish. It makes you illusion stronger. The assertion of Christianity that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, that's a fact of history. And here's how it unfolded. This is what happened. Three days after Jesus of Nazareth suffered and died, and his death was certified by the Roman officials and by the, uh, by the soldiers who were at the tomb, they at the cross. Three days later, and he was laid in the tomb. Three days later, on the morning, on the Sunday morning, the women were coming out of the tomb. There was an earthquake, the stones rolled away, an angel descended from heaven and sat upon that tomb. And the women arrived at the tomb, and Mary Magdalene fled to go tell Peter and John, and the other women had a conversation with that angel that was standing at that tomb. And the Roman soldiers who had been overtaken with their fear and terrified, they fled and went into town. And that angel said, see the place where they laid the Lord? He's not here. He is risen. Go tell his disciples, and he will meet them in Galilee. And those women fled and went away from there. And at the same time, Peter and John were coming out to the tomb, and they stopped at the, at the tomb, and they looked inside, and they saw the grave clothes lying there, and no body. And then Peter and John left, and Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene at the tomb, and then later on to the other women at the, uh, on the way back from the tomb. Later that same day, the Lord Jesus appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then he appeared to Peter at some point on that first Sunday, and then he appeared to all of the disciples minus Thomas in a locked room, recorded in the Gospel of John. Those five appearances on that first Sunday. Now that happened exactly as history reports that it happened, and the eyewitnesses who saw and heard those things wrote them down in a book, in multiple books that we call New Testament. That is exactly how it unfolded. That is the assertion of Christianity. It's not secondary to our faith. That is our faith. It's everything. It's not true, we have nothing. It is true, we have everything. A lot that hinges on us. So not only is it a prophetic event, it's a historical event. And third, the Apostle Paul asserts that it is a verifiable event. Look down, if you will, at verse 31. He says, And for many days he appeared to those who came with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. Luke says at the beginning of the book of Acts, in chapter 1, verse 3, that he showed himself alive with many convincing groups. See, we're asserting not that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and he appeared to one person, he passed that on to us, and so we're trusting that one guy who happened to get a reference. That's not our claim at all. We're actually saying that he rose from the dead and then he appeared to Mary Magdalene and the women, and then Peter, the two disciples, rose from the mass, and all the disciples gathered together. And then another group of disciples uh, a week later, and then he appeared to over 500 witnesses at one time. He appeared to James at some point, and he appeared to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. We are asserting that Christ was risen from the dead, and he was seen by hundreds of people on different occasions, at different points in time, at different times of the day, and he did different things with them. At one point, he met them in the locker room. At another point, he met them on the seashore. At another point, he met them along a road to a distant town. And he ate with them, and he had breakfast with them, and he made breakfast for them, and he taught them, and he sat down, and he had conversations with them, and they had extended long conversations with the very one whom they had seen hanging on a cross, a Roman cross, just a few weeks earlier. It's a verifiable event. So if you're sitting here this morning and you don't believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened, I would ask you to do this. Do the world a massive favor and prove it to be a hoax. Have fun with it. Prove it to be a hoax. You'll make millions. You'll do all of us a favor. And you'll be the first one in history in 2,000 years to do it. Just prove that it didn't happen. We have an empty grave. And hundreds of witnesses, many of whom wrote down their testimony in the New Testament, what we collect from the Old Testament. We have hundreds of witnesses who saw him raised from the dead three days after he was crucified. It's a verifiable event. It happened or it didn't. It happened, and witnesses saw him. 
when the Apostle Paul Peter started preaching on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he didn't go into a faraway land, a month and a half journey away from where the events happened, and tell it to a bunch of people who had never seen or heard anything like this at all. You know where he started his preaching? In the heart of the city of Jerusalem, a 15-minute walk from the Garden Tomb. I had walked in from Pentecost Square. The Garden Tomb is 15 minutes. Anybody standing there could have said, What? You're telling me the tomb is empty? You hold on a second. I'll be right back. I'm going to go check it out for myself. And they could have walked over to the Garden Tomb and seen that indeed the tomb was empty. Nobody ever produced a body. The Roman officials never produced a body. The Jewish leadership never produced a body. The disciples never produced a body. And those men died for what they said was true. Eyewitnesses, it's a verifiable historical event. Fourth, it's a watershed event. This is what the Apostle Paul means when he appeals to them, beginning in verse 39. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all the things which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Therefore, take heed, so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. And then he quotes them back in chapter 1, verse 5, where that he was describing the judgment that is to come upon those who do not believe. And Paul was saying, take heed that the judgment that is described by the prophets upon those who do not believe doesn't fall upon you. You can either be forgiven for all the things which the law of Moses condemns you for, you can be freed from all of the things from, from which the law of Moses cannot free you, or you can face the judgment that is certainly to come that the prophets also predicted. Not only did the prophets predict that God would send a Savior, they predicted that the nation would reject and crucify that Savior. The prophets predicted that that Savior would rise again from the dead. And the prophets have predicted that those who reject and disbelieve in that Savior will face a most certain judgment at the end of time. All of that is promised and predicted. The false quote of scripture all the way through this passage to this group of Jews. And he is describing forgiveness to them in terms that they would have understood. You can be free by believing in him. You can be free of all the things that you could not be free from by the law of Moses. The law of Moses couldn't free you from anything. And what type of freedom is the Apostle Paul talking about? Freedom from sin, for one. The law can't free you from that. The law can't free you from a guilty conscience. The law cannot free you from the wrath of God. The law cannot set you free from, from sin itself, being a slave to sin. The law cannot set you free into forgiveness from your guilt and your condemnation. The law is unable to do any of that. In fact, all that the law does, the law of Moses mentioned here, all that it does is condemn us. Declares that we're guilty. We're guilty before God because of what the law says. The law says you shall not steal. And every individual sitting in this room has stolen something in your lifetime. Irrespective of its value, probably more things than one. You're guilty of that. The law says you shall not lie. You're a false witness. And yet every person here is told to lie. Every person here is law. And the Bible promises that thieves will not inherit the kingdom of God, and the liars will have their part in the lake that burns with fire, and we blaspheme and take God's name in vain, we use it in a careless way. We have not honored God as we should with the giving of days again. We have not loved the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We've dishonored our parents. We are guilty of coveting. If we've lusted, we've committed adultery. If we hated, we've committed murder. On every count and at every turn, the law declares us guilty. It doesn't free us. It says you are guilty. You are condemned. You're guilty, guilty, guilty. Tens of thousands of crimes I have committed. Hundreds of thousands of crimes we have committed against God. A holy and benevolent and gracious king who's given to us everything. He's given to us life. He's given to us breath. He's given to us ears to hear good music and eyes to see beautiful sunsets and bodies to enjoy the delights of this creation. He's lavished all that goodness upon me. And all we've done is rebelled against him by violating the law of Moses. And the law cannot free us from that. The law declares us guilty. It doesn't give us any righteousness. Scripture says that if righteousness could come by keeping the law of Moses, then righteousness would have come by the law of Moses. God would have simply given the law to keep the law and he'd be made righteous. 
But God knows we can't keep the law. He knows that we violate the law from the very first moment that we can speak, we tell lies. We come forth from the womb speaking lies out of our mouths, hating God and enmity with Him, that we're condemned, and justly so. And so what should this good and righteous and holy God do with us who have violated His law so many times? We violated the law of Moses, we can't be free from it. The law is unable to save us, unable to forgive us, unable to set us free, unable to cleanse us, unable to give us righteousness, and unable to give us life. The law condemns us and leaves us guilty, condemned, and dead before God. In fact, the law of Moses calls out for our blood as the just penalty for our sin. That's justice. We deserve eternal hell. The scripture says that what the law could not do if it was weak, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he condemned sinful flesh, by making an offering for sin in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. God sent his son, who lived a perfect life, completely righteous. He never violated a single one of God's commandments. He was completely righteous, and he died on the cross to pay the price for our sin, to make an atonement. In Isaiah 53, it says he was our guilt offering. God made him a guilt offering for us. It says the Father was pleased to crush him for our, in our stead. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Having lived a perfect right, righteous life, he lived a life that we could not live. The life that the law demands. He lived it in our stead. And then he died in the cross in our stead. So that having been put to flesh, uh, put to death in his flesh, and then made alive in a glorified body, he could forever justify and forgive and cleanse and set free all who will come to him by faith. And so what does God demand of us? He demands of us repentance and faith. Repentance means we turn from our sin, walk away from our sin, and faith means we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done. We believe in our hearts and trust that his death was our death, that his life is our life, and that God delivered him over as our sacrifice so that having been put to death for us, we can have life because of what he has done. Paul says there is coming a day in which God will judge the world in righteousness, and he has furnished proof to all men by raising the judge from the dead. The fact that Jesus Christ is alive today, that he is risen in history, that it is a prophetic, historical, and verifiable fact, the fact that he is, that has been raised from the dead is proof of two things. Number one, that you can be forgiven, and number two, that if you are not forgiven, that you will be judged. If you die unforgiven, you will be forever unforgiven. If you die forgiven, you will have life eternal. That's what's the stake of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, as ambassador of Jesus Christ, I thank you, I implore you, I command you this day to repent and receive the forgiveness that Jesus Christ offers you. You have not already. Receive his mercy or face his wrath. That's what the resurrection of Christ means. God has. Our Father, we thank you that you have delivered a people for yourself from our sin. We thank you that you have, by your grace, cleansed us from our conscience and set us free from all the things that the law of Moses could not free us from. We thank you for the resurrection of Christ, the empty tomb, the eyewitnesses, the recorded history that is right and true, inspired and preserved for us, that we might know that these things are true and that they have happened, and that we might know the ramifications of that, the implications of that for us and for our eternal salvation. Thank you for your mercy. Lord, we pray that it is that we pray that if there are any here who have never trusted Jesus Christ for salvation, that you would quicken their hearts and draw them to the Savior. Make them to see that it start in clear terms their need for salvation, so that they may come to Christ and be forgiven and be set free and have life eternal. That the Son may receive the full reward for all that he has suffered. We thank you that he bore our sin in his own body on the tree. We thank you that he has raised from the grave a newness of life. Never to die again. 
that all that you have written concerning him will most certainly come to pass. Glorify your name in our hearts through our response to you and the truths of Scripture we pray. Christ's name. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.